the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? So, Mark, what the hell is going on? So what the hell is going on is that Danny has finally left the Southern Hemisphere, but she has only made her way partly back to the United States because she is in Taipei, Taiwan, where she has been observing the historic Taiwanese presidential elections. These elections were something spectacular, and China wasn't happy with the results, were they, Danny? Oh, no. So, you know, China claims Taiwan, which is the Republic of China, as a province of the People's Republic. They don't like democratic elections going on here any more than they like people demanding their democratic rights in Hong Kong. And so when Taiwan votes, it's just a slap in the face to the People's Republic. And when millions and millions of people come out to vote for the candidate who is much tougher on China, and she wins in a landslide victory, 20 points ahead of her opponent, who was more pro-China. That's even worse news for Beijing. So there's a pretty exciting election here. You know, it's funny because the Chinese obviously don't like the result, but there's probably nobody more responsible for the result than the People's Republic of China. <laughs> you know, President Tsai was considered almost out of the running a year ago. She was a political uh, dead woman walking. And then all of a sudden the Hong Kong protests start and China cracks down on the protesters. And people in Taiwan said, oh, that's what you mean by two, one country, two systems. Uh, not, no, thank you. Yeah, she knows. Listen, she was, as you rightly said, dead man walking, dead woman walking a year ago. But Hong Kong has totally changed things around. And the Chinese government, for reasons that still are a little unclear to me, has mismanaged Hong Kong so badly. And you and I have talked about this repeatedly on the podcast, has mismanaged this so badly that they sent a message to every single one of their neighbors and, uh, and to the people of Taiwan that, yeah, if we have what's called one country, two systems, what that really means is one country, one system under the Communist Party in Beijing. Your freedoms are gone. Your rights are gone. Riot police will be in the streets trying to take you away. Your political opponents will be spirited away and disappeared into Chinese prisons. And the Taiwanese people who have a very prosperous democracy uh, turned around and said, um, gee, no thank you. I just don't understand China's approach to all of this because so Hong Kong is the golden goose, right? All they have to do is leave the place alone, let it function under the one country, two systems deal that they had, give it the autonomy that they promised and keep reaping the benefits. And instead, they launched this horrific crackdown on protesters that not only has like roiled Hong Kong and put it in jeopardy, but has completely undermined its objective of wooing Taiwan back to the mainland. They've been under the KMT, which is the, the Nationalist Party that preceded President Tsai's party. They forged economic cooperation agreements with Taiwan. They were trying to bring them closer. They were giving them opportunities for businesses to invest, special visas for people to come over, money pouring in, Chinese tourists going over. And by the crackdown in Hong Kong, they've completely undone all the progress that they had made from their perspective in sort of wooing Taiwan back into the, into the fold of the motherland. 
Well, you know, wooing is really not Chinese, the Chinese <laughs> approach to anything. And I, I think that's part of the challenge is that Xi Jinping, who is the Chinese president, is aggressive. He's a throwback to the earlier, you know, less open, less capitalistic, less free China. You know, and, and all of China's neighbors are noticed. You know, you make fun of me for having been in Australia. But in Australia, you, what you see is this major turnaround in attitudes. You know, China is a hugely important trading partner to almost everybody, like it is to the United States. And nonetheless, what you see in Australia is that Xi Jinping and his aggressive habits, their uh, attempts to interfere in Australian democracy, their attempts to use ethnic Chinese to promote the Communist Party agenda is really backfiring everywhere. And the same was true here. And so, you know, here was this woman, Tsai Ing-wen, who, uh, who leads the Democratic Progressive Party. And she was assumed to lose. And not only did she win, she won with more votes than have ever been cast. You know, people have mischaracterized what happened. She won. She got 8.2 million votes. There weren't 8.2 million votes cast. She got 8.2 million votes. This is a country of about 24 million people. I mean, when you think about that kind of turnout and that kind of vote, you know, that was intended to be a slap in the face to Beijing. It has been a slap in the face to Beijing. And Beijing so doesn't get it that people who congratulated Tsai Ing-wen on her victory, including you know the United States government, were rebuked the day after by Beijing. I mean, what the hell? That's a that's a very good question. It's one we try to answer on this podcast every day. So here's the question. What the hell does Beijing do now? Because this is the million dollar question, because they if they if they were capable of some introspection, they would say, boy, we really screwed up here. The Nationalist Party, which is considered more pro Beijing, was cruising to reelection until we cracked down in, in Hong Kong. And now all of a sudden we have created this wave of anti-China sentiment in Taiwan that led to size improbable reelection. So what should we do now? Well, huh, let's let's use economic coercion to squeeze them now. So let's, you know, the, let's let's do that. That'll be a really a great idea. Oh, no, that might push Taiwan to have a free trade agreement with the United States to become more economically independent of China, which means it'll be more de facto truly independent. Or maybe we should threaten them with military action. Well, that might also backfire in other ways. So what do you see Beijing doing now? And can we expect them to continue to shoot themselves in the foot? So it's funny, you know, well, our colleague Oriana Mastro had a piece uh, after after Tsai's victory in the paper, and she said she spends a lot of time in, in China talking to the military. She said she's really worried that the Chinese are going to contemplate military action. They seem less worried about that here. They seem to think that, that the Chinese are not are not going to move in that direction. They're going to continue to threaten them. They're going to continue to try to bully Taiwan but that they're not ready for the consequences of an invasion. Uh, President Trump reversed U.S. policy. The Obama administration didn't, didn't have a, a very enthusiastic program of arms sales to Taiwan. And frankly, the Bush administration promised a lot to Taiwan and didn't deliver. The Trump administration has delivered a lot of advanced weaponry to, to Taipei. And so they're hoping that that will be a deterrent to China. And I think that the, they think the world is watching. I hope they're right. But 
the one thing that we haven't seen is any sort of rethink coming out of Beijing. They're not saying to themselves, hmm, you know, maybe maybe honey's a little better than vinegar. And I think that can all be put down to Xi Jinping. He just he, he doesn't know how to do it. It's funny. I, re- I read Oriana's article and I, rec- I commend it uh, to everybody. It's in the Los Angeles Times and it's titled Why Saying Wins Re-Election as President Could Darken Taiwan's Future. I don't think she means it in the sense that the uh, Democratic elections will darken Taiwan's future, but that they're sending a message to China that there's never going to be peaceful reunification and that the Chinese may realize, and particularly if you think about this, you know, the Chinese economy is in real trouble in part because of the, the tariffs that Trump has imposed on them, but also and because of their own mismanagement of the economy. So they're economically weak. And what do countries do when they're economically weak? They, they, you know, the Chinese leaders tend to become extremely nationalist and play those cards. When President Xi gave that big speech about Taiwan, which was sort of saber-rattling, that was at a time when the economy was starting to go on a downturn, and people saw it for what it was, which is when you're weak at home, turned to sable rattling. We just had a long discussion in in our episodes about the Soleimani strike in Iran, about how totalitarian regimes can misread strategic patience for weakness. And, you know, when the United States didn't respond to a series of Iranian provocations, they thought they could get away with killing an American, and they miscalculated and got themselves into a lot of trouble. China is very capable of making a similar miscalculation, don't you think? They are, for sure. And we've seen them, uh, you know, as we said, make one bad decision after another. The United States doesn't have a fence treaty with Taiwan. That's really the risk here. I think for a lot of people, particularly for size opponents and for people who are a little bit more cautious on China, both here and in Washington, the real problem is that they worry that if China decides to invade Taiwan, that the United States is basically going to turn around and go, ah, you know, really? Are we going to go to war with this giant military? For, for the freedom of Taiwan, they worry that, it, that, that actually if tested, the United States won't be there. And I got to say, Mark, if you look around this area, we have let China dominate the Pacific over the last decade without much pushback. The pushback's only just started. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think that especially to take a little bit of a devil's advocate side, there are people who warn that just poking at China insisting that, you know, that we're never going to be part of China is really risky for Taipei because, in fact, you just don't know 100 percent that the United States has your back. That's the experience that Saudi Arabia just had when Iran attacked. They thought Donald Trump had their back, but he didn't. Then Donald Trump changed his mind and ordered the killing of Qasem Soleimani. And we still don't really know what our policy is in the region. The Taiwanese are in pretty much the same position, only they're much, much weaker vis-a-vis this really, really powerful enemy in the People's Republic. On the other hand, though, Danny, I mean, Donald Trump's policy, he's been the most pro-Taiwan president in our lifetime since, you know, since Jimmy Carter broke relations. The Obama administration would only send one or two uh, warships a year through the Taiwan Straits, which is, is the Straits separating Taiwan from the mainland China. Trump is sending them at a pace of almost one a month, basically saying these are international waters. We're sailing through here and nothing you can do about it, Beijing. He's been sending increased visits by one and two star generals. He recently, as you noted, improved a major arms sale. That included F-16 fighters, which is the first time we've sold F-16s to Taiwan since 1992. And that's a sale that the Obama administration turned 
turned down that they didn't want to do it because it was too provocative. And quite frankly, he he became the first American president or president-elect at the time to speak with a elected leader of Taiwan when when he accepted uh, President Tsai's uh, congratulatory call. And the Washington Post reported that wasn't a, a flub. That was intentional when they did that. So he is he's he's doing pretty good in terms of deterrence. But deterrence has to be maintained, as we've learned the hard way uh, in the Middle East. And uh, I hope that he does. Yeah, listen, they 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 love Donald Trump here. <laughs> you know, he, he may not be that popular at home, but he's pretty popular here. There's no question that, that Trump is the most sort of pro-Taiwan, most open to supporting Taiwan president we've, we've had. Here's the risk. A, you know, you can't count on Donald Trump. And B, does it stay that way? The one thing I'll say about that is a lot of Taiwan's fortune has nothing to do with Taiwan. A lot of Taiwan's fortune, just like Tsai Ing-wen, a lot of her victory didn't have as much to do with her as it did to do with China. People all over the world, the American leader, even some European leaders, the Australian leaders, everybody is sick and tired of China throwing its weight around. It has backfired massively. And that really, in terms of Trump, that's one of the reasons why you see his different attitude on Taiwan. It's like, you know, hey, you Chinese, you think you can threaten? You think you can bully? No, you can't. You know, we're not going to put up with it. So he's been a part of that pushback. He's been part of that reaction. And, and as you rightly said, though, it hasn't, it hasn't caused any sort of a rethink in, in Beijing. And I'll tell you one other thing that he's doing, which I think is going to have a major strategic impact, and it's one of my hobby horses that you tease me about, but I think it's really important, is the withdrawal from the INF Treaty. So our colleague Dan Blumenthal wrote a great piece in the Washington Post a couple of years ago about how basically we're at a disadvantage in the Asia Pacific because China, like something like 95% of their missiles violate the INF Treaty, would violate the INF Treaty if they'd been a part of it. They have short and medium range missiles. This is a treaty that bans short and immediate range missiles that uh, President Trump withdrew from. It was a treaty with Russia, and we were both held to it. Russia was cheating. We were not building them, and China was building these missiles. Before we withdrew from that and before we had the right to build these missiles, if we got into a scuffle with the, with the Chinese or, or a conflict with China, our only deterrent was a nuclear ICBM, which they could call our bluff and say, you're not going to nuke us. Of course you're not. And so if we are able to deploy intermediate range missiles in Japan, in Guam, in bases in in East Asia, we now have a conventional deterrent that didn't exist before. And I think the the U.S. has started testing those missiles. I think it would send a very strong signal of support to Taiwan if we started deploying those, and we and we could do it tomorrow by just taking Tomahawk cruise missiles and putting them in Guam. But you know, we should we should be making clear to to, to China that we have a conventional deterrent if you wanted to take some action against Taiwan. But Donald Trump is such a zero sum guy. Don't you worry that he's not willing to stand up to China as we think he is, and that everything is going to be hostage to this trade deal he's hoping to do? Well, that's, uh, to some extent, the genius of the Soleimani strike, right? That no one expected him to do that. And that took Iran by surprise. But you know what? North Korea is watching that. Beijing is watching that. Lots of other enemies are watching that. And so they don't know what Donald Trump will do, what he's capable of. And so in deterrence, you need to, your goal is to create doubt in the mind of the enemy as to whether or not you will impose the kind of consequences on them that they consider unacceptable. And I think in the wake of the Soleimani strike, I think that that enhances our deterrent uh, when it comes to China, too.
Yeah, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Donald Trump, genius strategist. <laughs> hey, well, you know who likes you know you know who likes Donald Trump, the foreign minister of Taiwan. Yeah, no, I know. So I sat down with with Joseph Wu. He's he's an old friend uh, to us and to AEI. We don't have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan because it's not, you know, China doesn't let Taiwan be treated as a country. So, uh, but he was the head of their embassy, in quotes, in D.C. He was the national security advisor to President Tsai. And since 2018, he has been the foreign minister of the Republic of China. He was really nice to let me get back at you because... I was out of town and you talked to and you talked to Secretary of State Pompeo without me. And so, you know, I had to get my own back. So I sat down by myself with with uh, with Joseph on the day after the election. It was uh, really kind of him to do that on a on a Sunday and on a big day in this country. And uh, we we had a great conversation. Exclusive reporting on this podcast coming to you, listeners. Here we go. Foreign Minister of Taiwan. Joseph Wu, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I'm really grateful. Uh, it is my pleasure, Danny, and I love to do this. This is the first time for me, but I think it should be good. It'll be great, and I have to tell you, you're helping me get revenge on my podcast co-host, Mark Thiessen, uh-huh. because he interviewed Secretary of State Pompeo a couple of weeks ago without me, and now I have a foreign <laughs> minister all to myself. So I'm very grateful for that. I'm very happy to be able to do this for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. So we're, we're meeting on a pretty auspicious day. It's mm-hmm. the day after the Taiwanese democratic elections. Mm-hmm. President Tsai Ing-wen of the Democratic Progressive Party won in a Mm -hmm. really landslide victory Mm -hmm. against her opponent from the Kuomintang, the main opposition party. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you think happened yesterday. That was the uh, seventh direct presidential election in Taiwan. The first one was in uh, 1996. Uh, And in the previous six direct presidential elections, we had three peaceful turnovers of political power. So this is just another step of uh, Taiwan's democracy. And you know, Taiwan's uh, democracy, uh, every time there's a direct presidential election, it's always a very passionate moment for the country. Uh, I think it's also a very exciting moment for the electorate who are able to go to the voting booths uh, just to show to the international community, Taiwan is a democracy, Taiwan is a mature democracy, and Taiwan will sustain this democracy. It really, it really was remarkable. We had a uh, few colleagues and I had the opportunity to go to a, a polling station, mm-hmm. and then we were at both the main party's headquarters mm-hmm. uh, last night as the election returns were coming in. I mean, people genuinely were you know, thrilled out in the streets, out, you know, out celebrating their opportunity to make their voice known. Tell me what you think, though, it means. I understand that it means a lot for Taiwan's democracy. But what does President Tsai's victory mean? Why do you think that she won? And why do you think she won so solidly? Almost 8 million votes, almost a 20-point margin against her opponent. Uh, in fact, there's uh, more than 8 million votes. It's uh, 8 million plus 170,000 votes. So it's, it's a tremendous victory for the president. And this is the largest number of votes in president. Uh, can ever have in in Taiwan's direct presidential election. Uh, One thing that I think is quite unique in uh, this particular election uh, that is different from any of uh, previous elections 
uh, that shows not only the success of the president, uh, but that also shows the, the maturity of this democracy. The turnout of the young people, the young voters, is tremendously high. Uh, used to be the case that the, the age cohort of uh, 20 to 29 uh, is the most vocal. Some of them are very vocal in politics, um, but turnout in the election happens to be the lowest, maybe 30 percent, 40 percent. But this time around, uh, it's probably uh, more than 70 percent for this age cohort uh, to turn out and vote. That's amazing. That's as, really as an American, I have to say I'm pretty jealous of you. We don't, we don't see numbers like that anymore at all. Uh, but what's interesting here is young people also voted pretty overwhelmingly for President Tsai. Mm-hmm. And what I want to understand a little better, because I think it's really interesting for folks in the United States, is six months ago, eight months ago, President Tsai was trailing in the polls. Many people thought that she was not going to win re-election. Mm-hmm. She turned it around, and she turned it around in a very big way. If you had to talk about the number one factor, what would that be? Uh, I'm not sure I'm able to tell you what the number one factor is, and I don't work for the uh, campaign headquarters anymore, so it's hard for me to answer that question. But I do know there are several factors uh, playing at the same time. Uh, Maybe Hong Kong factor is uh, very important in this election. One of the reasons why the young voters here uh, in Taiwan, uh, they want to turn out and vote because they see the demonstrations in Hong Kong. They see the young demonstrators in Hong Kong fighting for their freedom and democracy. And the young voters here in Taiwan, they're very concerned that might happen to Taiwan in the future. They're saying to themselves, if they don't come out and vote, if they don't come out and try to safeguard the country by going through the democratic process, Taiwan might become second Hong Kong, and that is exactly uh, what they don't want to see in the future. The second factor is the international trade situation. You know, compared to Singapore, Hong Kong, China, or uh, other countries who are experiencing a stagnation or not growing or growth in the negative uh, territory, Taiwan's economic situation is rather good, and the opposition cannot use uh, the economy as a, a campaign issue to get it to the government and the government is telling the public saying that hey compared to asian other uh asian four tigers taiwan is doing rather well and taiwan is able to uh, capitalize on the trade dispute in between the united states and china by attracting the taiwanese investors in china to come back to taiwan and invest and that helps our economy as well another factor and this is something that within my own jurisdiction our international relations. Even though Taiwan's relations with the diplomatic allies uh, is an issue that the opposition is trying to uh, attack us. We lost some diplomatic allies in the last few years. But look at our relations with the United States, with Europe, with Japan, with other like-minded countries. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the global environment. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting to have seen over the past few years. There really has been a, a, a a change in global attitudes uh, about the People's Republic of China, where I think there had once been a lot more optimism uh, about Chinese economic changes actually leading to some good political changes. Mm-hmm. That optimism, I think, has largely gone away, and that is uh, uh, that's a shame. I mean, frankly, for I think for all of us, I think for Taiwan as well, we've all hoped to see 
China actually transform in a positive rather than in a negative direction. But it was interesting to me to see that uh, that one of the rallying cries of, of President Tsai was no to one country, two systems. Exactly. That has been the system under which Hong Kong has operated mm-hmm. since the British returned Hong Kong territory to Chinese sovereignty. Why is that such a big rallying cry here, no to one country, two systems? You know, when Hong Kong was returned to China, you know, this is a longer answer to this uh, very important question. Uh, when Hong Kong was returned to China, uh, the Chinese created this uh, one country, two system model to uh, rule over Hong Kong. Uh, and they want to use the Hong Kong model as an attraction to the Taiwanese voters or the Taiwanese public so that Taiwan and China can unify someday uh, under the one country, two system model. You know, they think that the one country, two system model is, is a, uh, a model uh, to unify the whole China. Uh, but over these years, uh, the people are seeing the one country, two system model in Hong Kong. Uh, freedom uh, gets eroded, especially the freedom of speech, freedom of press. And rule of law is uh, getting uh, eroded, and the early promise of a democracy, like the election for the legislative council or for the administrative chief, uh, is not going to be realized anymore. Uh, and the uh, court processes uh, might get uh, overturned by the Chinese People's Congress. So all these are negative development of what people in Taiwan want to see. So one country, two system model already has a bad reputation in Taiwan. When we do the public opinion survey in Taiwan, asking the people whether they would like to have one country, two system model in Taiwan, the rejection rate used to be somewhere around 70 to 75%. And after January 2nd last year, Xi Jinping just made it very loudly that Taiwan and China should unify uh, at some point based on 1982 consensus and one country, one China principle and use one country, two system as a formulation for the future unification. And people wake up all of a sudden say, hey, look at what happened in Hong Kong and now you want to impose the, uh, the, the same system on Taiwan. And president was uh, very clear, non-ambiguous to say that this is not what we want. And not what not what she wants, she not what you want, and clearly not what young Taiwanese people want. Exactly. Who it's, think of themselves, you talk about the polling. Yeah. It's really fascinating to see that younger people in Taiwan increasingly don't think of themselves as Chinese. Exactly. They think of themselves as Taiwanese. Taiwanese. Exactly, exactly. And especially after the demonstration in Hong Kong uh, June last year, Police uh, clashes with the demonstrators, and the police got you know, very violent. Uh, sometimes they would use uh, lethal weapons uh, to go against the uh, demonstrators. And the young people here just have so much sympathy for the Hong Kong people who are inspired to pursue freedom and democracy. And listen to those Hong Kong people. They are also shouting at Taiwan and say that don't become something like us in the future. So it is very important for you young people in Taiwan to vote for somebody who is able to safeguard your democracy. And just not long ago, I think it was about one month ago, we did a public opinion survey asking people 
you know, do you like one country two system model? The rejection rate goes up to eighty nine point three percent. It's a national consensus amazing. that we don't want it. So one of the things that I looked at this morning um, after the election was was the Chinese, the People's Republic of China, uh, reaction. Xinhua, which is uh, <laughs> one of the Chinese news agency, the made the official Chinese uh, the, news agency. The reason why I'm laughing at it because you know I was just reading it a, a minute ago before uh, I came in over uh, here. So uh, I'm going to quote. I'm going to quote this because I want to hear what you have to say. Um, as people of insight, Xinhua writes, as people of insight and the media on the island have said, this is obviously not a normal election. Tsai and the DPP used dirty tactics such as cheating, repression, and intimidation to get votes, fully exposing their selfish, greedy, and evil nature. That sounds a little hysterical to me. Uh, um, so the Chinese, I think the, the Chinese were pretty enthusiastic about the idea that the election was going to go against President Tsai. Um, what is the argument that they make? Uh, it only shows that uh, they don't know how to read Taiwan's democracy or Taiwan's uh, election in a correct way. Uh, and their argument is so different from the rest of the world. Uh, and there's only one explanation. That is because they don't have freedom. They don't have uh, democracy in China. There's no uh, free election in China. And they don't know how to read uh, the results of a free election. Even the opposition are not complaining about those kinds of activities uh, that the report is uh, claiming. And, and I think we need to uh, tell the Chinese a more accurate story uh, in Taiwan's democracy, not just for Taiwan to be able to uh, speak about it, but for the international community to speak more about it, and also to, for the international community to try to convince the Chinese that this democracy is good for the country. And China should try it as well. It might be a very hard sell for the authoritarian uh, Chinese communist government, but at this moment, but if Taiwan becomes more successful in the future, either in making international friendship networks or its economy and you know, uh, being recognized by more by international community as a very successful democracy, as a force for good, as a reliable partner, I think that might be a way to persuade the Chinese that they should go for democracy themselves at some point. Well, I certainly hope so. One of my <laughs> colleagues, Oriana Schuyler Mastro, wrote uh, about the elections for the LA Times, and she expressed some concern based on her discussions with Chinese military officials and senior mm. Chinese Communist Party officials mm. that that China is not interested in tolerating merely the status quo, mm. that in fact there is some uh, thinking going on in Beijing about potential military action. Mm. Um, critics of President Tsai and of the DPP say that the opposition party has built a more peaceful relationship uh, across the strait, that there's more dialogue, that there's more openness, and that therefore the Beijing government feels less threatened mm. uh, by the potential of Taiwanese independence. First of all, what do you think about the threat from, from China? How, how real is it? How seriously? And obviously, you're a foreign minister, not a defense minister, so you can keep it uh, in, in that lane. But also, what do you think about the criticism that the DPP has neglected to nurture that cross-strait relationship? Um, need to uh, come back to the very basics of, uh, first, the reality on the ground. Second, the bottom line of the DPP policy toward China. Uh, on the first aspect, you know, if you look at the reality in Taiwan, we have a free 
direct presidential election for the president for the parliament already. And uh, you are here to observe our election. You know that Taiwan is a genuine democracy. And you are now sitting in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and we issue passport, we issue visa, we're functioning like a Ministry of Foreign Affairs across the world. And when you are here in Taiwan, you use our uh, NT notes rather than using RMB that is used in China. And also tell you uh, the reality that the PRC never for any one single moment had any jurisdiction over Taiwan. So the reality is that Taiwan is not under China's jurisdiction. We have our own central government running this country. So this is a fact. And this is the reality of the status quo across the Taiwan Strait. And the second aspect that I would like to emphasize on is that ever since President Tsai uh, was running for the presidential uh, first presidential election uh, back in 2016, she already made her position uh, very well known uh, throughout Washington, D.C. or throughout the rest of the world that she is not about to provoke China. She was about to establish a cross-trade relations that is uh, stable, uh, predictable, and sustainable. And she has been holding on to those positions. And her basic policy toward China is that we want to maintain a status quo. And if the status quo can be maintained, you know, we'll continue to uh, extend our goodwill to China so there can be a negotiations, consultations, uh, businesses, uh, exchanges, and all that so that we can have a peaceful and stable environment in this part of the world. And that's her policy. Her policy hasn't changed. And if you listen to my rhetorics during these few days or the president's statements uh, last night, she said, I, I actually wrote it yeah. down, she she expressed herself on that topic. She said, non-provocative, non-adventurist attitude toward the People's Republic. So, That's right. I mean, Xi Jinping last year, uh, in his New Year's speech, mm. said it wasn't enough to maintain the status quo about Taiwan. He wanted progress. Now, yes. progress from Beijing is not, not necessarily Pro- what That's we right. think. <laughs> That's right, exactly. We progress, but, but that's that's still worrying rhetoric. Are you worried or? Yes. Yes, yes we are worrying uh, because the Chinese wanted to uh, impose political conditions on Taiwan. They made it very clear and made it more alarming uh, since Xi Jinping's statement on January 2nd last year. He said in a very clear way that if uh, unification with Taiwan is not making any progress, they would reserve the use of force against Taiwan. And that has become something that uh, we look at very seriously. And that is also something that the people here in Taiwan do not enjoy. Uh, and, and we want to tell the Chinese that, yes, we uh, want to speak with you for high-level meetings, for any kind of consultation with each other, or for quiet discussions with each other on some of the sensitive issues. That should be done without political precondition. And, you know, political precondition uh, in the eyes of uh, China is something like one China principle or one country, two system model for the future unification. But if you examine those preconditions very carefully, they are the pre-conclusions of whatever can be the results of any discussion. That's the Chinese negotiation tactics. You have to accept that before the negotiation starts. And if you don't accept that, I will have force against you so that you will gradually accept the uh, political preconditions to start the talk. But once you start accepting the political preconditions, you end up with a situation that you give up the most precious you have, 
one China principle means Taiwan is part of China. And that's not what the people here want. And one country, two system model is a model of unification that's being rejected by the Taiwanese people. So, you know, when the Chinese are saying that there's a lack of progress and they want to use force against Taiwan, I think the international community should tell China instead that they are putting up very difficult situations and they are using the wrong way against a federal democracy. They should listen very carefully on what Taiwanese people are saying. You know, by the same token, they should also listen very carefully on what the Hong Kong people are saying after the local council election last year. One of the things you think about is is your relationship with the United States. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump has, I've got a lot of criticism for the president. <laughs> I don't expect you to uh, nod your head even, but, um, but uh, Donald Trump has changed the way America talks to both Beijing and Taipei. Mm-hmm. And that has been, I think, something that has been received with a lot of happiness mm-hmm. here. Uh, when we've talked previously, you talked a little bit about the relationship with the United States as being kind of a new normal, better access, more communication. I saw mm-hmm. that Secretary of State Pompeo put out a very warm congratulatory note on Taiwanese yes. elections. In years past, that that has That's not necessarily not. been the case. That's you right. know, a lot of deliberation, a lot of caution, mm-hmm. a lot of concern about offending Beijing. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case this mm-hmm. time. Do you think? And I'm I, you've been too generous with your time, so I won't keep you much longer. Is that the new normal? Do you think that that's going to be the way it is going forward with Washington? And how much confidence do you have in Washington as you look at the challenges from Beijing? Uh, I have a lot of confidence in Washington. I also have a lot of confidence in the Thai administration in Taiwan. Uh, one of the reasons why we'll continue to make progress in our relations with the United States, on the one hand, you know, we have so many friends in the Trump administration, it's either in the White House or in the National Security Council, State Department, Defense Department. And we also have uh, friends uh, across the board in the Washington, D.C.'s policy communities. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Congress, you know, we have friends on both sides of the aisle. So this is a a situation that we feel very comfortable. We get wide support in Washington, D.C. And Trump administration especially, all those friends in the administration, whether they are in the White House, in National Security Council, in the State Department, they are willing to try new things. They are willing to upgrade the relations. They are willing to send more people to Taiwan. They are willing to sell Taiwan arms that previously, you know, is not a possibility for Taiwan. So that's the part of uh, Washington, D.C. that we appreciate very much. But you're our second largest uh, military customer after Saudi Arabia. Exactly. It's a statistic exactly. that absolutely yes. boggles the mind if yes. you think about this small that, country. That's right. That's all. I, you mm. know, it's important that the mm. administration is willing to mm. share with you the means mm. to defend yourself. Mm. Um, we've been talking about this for years because I've known you since before you were the foreign minister. Okay, is this going to be the year for a free trade agreement with Washington? Uh, I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they've got we've got an agreement, uh, or at least a preliminary agreement with with Beijing about mm-hmm. some new ground rules for trade. How easy will it be to get a free trade agreement with Taiwan? Do you think it might not be that easy? Uh, we have been trying uh, to get the USTR to start the uh, FTA negotiations with Taiwan for quite some time, ever since I was in Washington, D.C. as a Taiwan's rep in 2007, 2008. Uh, and we haven't been making any real progress on this issue. So it may not be that easy, but I think, you know, this is... But you time. have free trade agreements with, what, you have one with New Zealand? Do you have... You have Singapore. Them? 
you have uh, several that, yeah, several. Uh, and it, and it has not been it's not been a source of tension with Beijing no. these these no. FTAs. No, but since it is in Taiwan's strategic interest to have an FTA with the United States, so we'll continue to uh, pursue that. You know, dependence on China uh, as a single largest market for us might not be uh, in our best interest. Diversity uh, is important. Exactly. Every every uh, economist in the world would tell us that, and we know that. So we want to diversify. And the best country, the best market for Taiwan uh, will be the United States. So it's in our strategic uh, interest. And for the United States, I think you know having an FTA with Taiwan can also be very important. Taiwan is always a loyal customer of uh, the United States. Not just a loyal customer. We sat down with the Chamber of Commerce here, and it was really interesting to hear them talking about, you know, uh, intellectual property protections, about the kind of standards that we're looking for here, you know, Mm. regulatory uh, ability, Taiwan semiconductors, and how important they are. So, I mean, there's a lot that that Taiwan has to offer, I guess. Mm. It's it's interesting to see that... uh, let me put it this way. I'm hopeful that that uh, that Washington will will make some progress on this uh, mm. in the coming year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'd be a you know, it it would be a good thing for the Trump administration to do yes. and for Congress to support. Yes, yes. And if we have an FTA, I'm sure it's going to encourage Taiwanese businessmen to make investment in the United States, which will benefit uh, U.S. Uh, in the area of uh, employment or economic growth, things like that, and this in your interest as well. Music to Donald yeah. Trump's ears, I'm sure. <laughs> You've been super generous. Congratulations, really. Not, not congratulations on the DPP's victory. Not congratulations on President Tsai's victory. Congratulations on having a free and democratic election. It is a great thing. Thank you very much. Uh, we are being appraised by the U.S. friends, uh, especially the uh, Trump administration, as a democratic success story, as a reliable partner, and as a force for good in the world. We'll continue to shine as a democratic success story, and we'll continue to work with the United States as a reliable partner, and we'll continue to work with the like-minded countries to make sure that Taiwan is a force for good in the world. Thank you very much for speaking with me, Danny. Amen to all of that. Thank you, Joseph, truly. Thank you. Danny, you did a great job. That was a fantastic interview. Great get. Uh, in a historic day in Taiwan. What was your main takeaway from your discussion with the uh, foreign minister? I think the main takeaway is actually that Taiwan, you know, look, Taiwan is coming into its own. And, you know, they have no desire to piss off China. They have no desire to declare independence tomorrow. But bottom line, it's totally generic. Democracy is better than dictatorship. People like... Heard it here first, people. You heard it here first. (laughs) We're pro-democracy here at what the hell is going on. <laughs> Listen, you know, I know that it sounds, you know, it sounds obvious, but 1.4 billion people are living across the Taiwan Strait, living under a Communist Party dictatorship. And I think that there's been a debate here. You know, Taiwan was a dictatorship as well. It was well, it's an authoritarian regime until the 1990s when they had their first three elections. And what's absolutely clear in polling and, and from this election is that not only do the Taiwanese people like living in freedom, like living in a place where they can choose their own leaders, they also think of themselves as Taiwanese people. They don't think of themselves as Chinese. That's bad news for the People's Republic of China. And you know what? The tide of history is against the People's Republic. Well, you know what? That that sort of happened here in our country once. Uh, We sort of started thinking of ourselves as not British. (laughs) 
and started thinking of ourselves as American. And I think that same phenomenon is happening in uh, Taiwan, where generate. I mean, you've got a whole generation that's grown up now that you know never has never even considered. You know, for a lot for many years under the nationalists on the Kuomintang, which we came into power under Chiang Kai-shek, the reason the country is called the Republic of China is because it it, it considers itself or considered itself for years the legitimate government of all of China. It was just on Taiwan. And the communists have never, People's Republic of China has never had sovereignty over Taiwan. And so there was a dispute over who was one China, right? And there's a whole generation for whom that's like an esoteric historical debate. They're Taiwan. They're not the people's. They're not the Republic of China. They're not the People's Republic of China. You know, they're they're Taiwanese, and that's the fault of Beijing for its authoritarian bullying. It is the fault of Beijing, and you know, President Tsai can look over at Beijing and and say, you know, thank you to Xi Jinping. And what's really interesting, and you know, people don't want to hear all of the all of the gritty details about the elections in Taiwan. But what's really interesting is they have separate a separate race for the presidency and for their legislative yuan, which is their parliament, their Congress. She outperformed her party by several million votes. Okay? So a lot of this is about her and about how she's managed, about how she stood up to to the People's Republic and about how she really forthrightly said no to one country, two systems. China could reassure Taiwan. China could help the Kuomintang back into power. It's not like people rejected them. You know, Tsai's party lost seats in the legislative yuan. They've got, they still got a majority, but it's a much, much slimmer majority now. China could manage this just like China could manage Hong Kong so much better if they just step back, suddenly realize that doing everything at the point of a gun, at the, at the end of a truncheon, might work a little better. No doubt. But this is the problem with all dictatorships is that they don't have uh, they don't have the ability to think that way. And on top of that, there's nobody within the Chinese, you know, increasingly authoritarian within the Communist Party uh, system, because there's a cult of Xi Jinping right now that is willing to go and say, you know what, you might be responsible for this. <laughs> you think you, you, you think you, maybe you ought to change your policy. You think there's a, there's a guy brave enough to walk into the president's office and, and say that to Xi Jinping? Obviously, there isn't. And, you know, the, the right lesson for him is to look around. Look at the message Taiwan sent you. Look at the message you're getting from Hong Kong. Look at the message the Iranian people are sending to Ayatollah Khamenei and the Islamic Republic. Look at what happened to the Soviet Union and ask yourself, can it never, ever happen here? I loved what Joseph Wu said uh, about China. He said, uh, they should try elections, too. <laughs> Well, that's a good note to end on, Danny. Great job, uh, you know, getting that interview. And we're looking forward to having you back here live for the next podcast. I can't wait to be there. I really miss home. Take care, Mark. Thanks, Alexa. Thanks for listening, folks. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.